John chapter 11. John chapter 11. We wait this morning on our Lord by hoping in His Word, gazing upon His sure and steady Son, who is the anchor of our soul. We come back to one of the greatest chapters in the Gospel of John, and I know you're tired of me saying that, because I say that in every chapter we're in. It seems to just get better with every step of progress we make through the book. Chapter 11 has, however, been, to me, especially compelling. In no chapter in all of the Gospels, outside of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, which is the end of all of the Gospels, do we find such raw and real expressions of the humanity of Jesus, combined so closely with the undeniable, unalterable, irrefutable deity of Jesus. We see these two natures, God's, Jesus' humanity and Jesus' deity in this one person, our Lord and Savior. He who is really and truly one with the Father, knowing the fullness of the divine nature, unaltered and unchanged by his incarnation, but who really and truly is man with a nature like ours, knowing the the anguish and the agony and the sorrow and the shame of our sin-cursed condition. He knows our weaknesses and he stares down the same temptations and sorrows that plague us every day and he does all of it without sin. Nowhere in the gospel record is that as clear as in the end of the story when Jesus faces the cross. But outside of that, nowhere else is it as clear as it is in John 11. When he approaches the tomb of one so deeply loved, his dear friend Lazarus. As we've walked our way through chapter 11, we have seen that the closer we get to the actual tomb, the physical resting place of Lazarus, the, the greater the assurances become for us. And what I mean by that is the closer we move toward the, the actual dead body of Lazarus. This is, this is not a make-believe story. This is reality in black and white ink for us. And the closer we come, the closer Jesus moves to that actual dead body, the, the clearer and the more pronounced are the assurances for Martha and Mary and Lazarus and me and you as we face our own suffering and our own pain. Chapter 11, as you know, is not a chapter of accidents. It's a, a chapter rather of calculated providences. God is at work from the very beginning to make all of these things accomplish his intended purposes, to display ultimately his glory, but also to grow his disciples in their faith and to give undeniable proof of the deity of Jesus. This is the last and most prolific miracle of our Lord, which will ultimately provoke the Jewish unbelievers to call for his death at the hands of the Romans violently pursuing him until they can convince Pilate to put him on a cross and give them Barabbas. All of that is rooted in John 11. John 19 to 21 does not happen unless John 11 happens. As Jesus approaches all the closer to the tomb of Lazarus, we see these bitter providences at work in Mary and Martha's life. 
By bitter providences, I mean those things that come into life that you can never change and would never choose. Those things you would never pick if, if God allowed you to have your life be a board game. You would never draw this card if you knew what it said. So those bitter providences that we see in John 11 flow toward the ultimate glorification of God through his son, our Lord Jesus. That is the umbrella assurance of John 11. That all of this is for the glory of God and the accomplishment of his plan. That umbrella assurance keeps us from dying under the hot sun of affliction. But what we've seen is that there's more in this chapter than that. John 11 is not just about the glory of God through his bitter providences. And you're just, you're just a, a piece on the chessboard of this providence. And you're just getting moved around however God wants to move you around. And ultimately it's, it's all about him and only about him. And that's true, but there's more. That's the umbrella assurance that we have that God is ultimately glorified through all these hard things. But as we've watched our Lord interact with this hurting family, we have seen so many helpful assurances for the suffering believer. We saw in the first 16 verses that we have the assurance of God's love for us. These bitter providences are always dripping with and directed by God's love for us. We also saw that these bitter providences are determined to grow us in our faith. God has a plan through these things to move us along in closer conformity to his son. And we also saw that all of them are destined ultimately for the glory of God, which is our highest and greatest hope. Last week, as we drew closer to the tomb of Lazarus, we saw Christ's compassionate handling of Martha, didn't we? We saw him be engaged with this, this hurting woman who is crushed in her sorrow in the moment, and Jesus handles her sympathetically and kindly and gently. And we found new assurances in that text. We saw that Jesus will not crush us in our sorrow. Rather, he will convince us of that which is true, ultimately that he is the resurrection and the life. And then he will challenge us through our affliction to not just believe that with our head, but to trust that with our lives. To stake our eternity upon the reality of Jesus, our resurrection, and our life. He is himself the solution to our sorrow. This is our glorious assurance. We come this week to the next interaction of Jesus with the next sister, Mary. And we find here three more assurances that help us in our affliction. John 11, verse 28, John the Apostle records this. When she, speaking of Martha... When Martha had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, She fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. 
And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Father in heaven, we bring to you all of our sorrows, our agonies, and our cares. And we confess, like that great Negro spiritual, that no one knows the trouble we've seen. No one knows the depth of our sorrow and our pain and our difficulty. But there is one. His name is Jesus. So Father, we praise you for this text that makes clear that your son was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Who can sympathize with us in our sorrow and was compelled to overcome our sorrow through the giving of his own life. Father, we praise you for Jesus. We ask that he would be exalted in the minutes ahead and that you would bring the healing balm of your word to the sadness of our soul and give us grace upon grace that we might hope in you. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. This chapter, as I've told you before, is like a biblical clinic on suffering and grief. These two sisters are quite different in how they respond to this sudden and unexpected death of their brother Lazarus. Martha is the the nuts and bolts response. She's dealing with facts and truths and sure statements that she has built her life upon. And all of a sudden, that's been thrown into a tizzy because her brother died and Jesus didn't come. And had he been there, Lazarus certainly would not have died. And so when she heard, Martha heard, that Jesus was on his way just outside of their small village of Bethany, she ran out to meet him because she had something to say. She had truth to lodge with the Savior, to, to say, how does this fit? And she does it worshipfully and graciously and full of faith, but she lodges her concern nonetheless. And you remember Jesus graciously answers her and reasons with her by pointing her to the resurrection, which she thinks is the the ultimate resurrection, and it was, but he was speaking of another one too. And then he ultimately answers her by pointing her to himself, by basically saying to Martha, Martha, you're viewing me through your affliction. However, you need to view your affliction through me. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet Shall he live? And he who believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? After confessing her faith, as we saw in verse 27, then she runs and gets Mary. And and by confessing her faith, she confessed what she knew. She still did not understand all that Jesus meant. And she did not have to. And Jesus knew that. But she confessed what she knew, what she understood. She believed about Jesus the Messiah. And he says to her, go and call Mary. Get her and bring her to me. And obviously he's avoiding the political powder keg that is already evident in the small village of Bethany. All these highfalutin Jewish people from Jerusalem who 
have already rejected him or are on their way to rejecting him or there in Bethany mourning with Mary and Martha. And Jesus knows that that will be a distraction if he enters into the village and has to start answering questions about things he said in chapter 10. And so he calls Mary out to himself and, and in calling her to himself, he ministers to her in her grief, which looks different than how he ministered to Martha in her grief. Where Martha was composed and reserved and collected and calm, not shedding even one tear, according to John, Mary is almost the exact opposite. Falling in that moment at the feet of Jesus and, and weeping almost uncontrollably as she expresses to Jesus the same struggle Martha had. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. What does Jesus do? Does he rebuke her and exhort her and call out her flamboyant display of grief and say, enough already? Does he tell her to stop her weeping? Does he tell the professional mourners to go away and, and stop all the noise? Does he say, okay, let's go get it over with already. Lazarus, come forth. They, they can't handle it anymore. No, he mercifully, compassionately enters into her grief with her. John says that he was deeply moved and greatly troubled. And instead of responding with truth statements to Mary like he did to Martha, he simply says to her, where have you laid him? He asks a basic question. It's obviously setting up the miracle. He obviously knows, but he's letting everyone else know that he hasn't arranged this miracle ahead of time. He, hasn't, he doesn't have Lazarus living behind a rock somewhere for four days and then all of a sudden go get in the tomb and I'm going to lead him there and call him out and he's going to be okay and put a, a dead skunk in there so it smells real bad when we roll the stone back. No, he's, he's prepping for the miracle, letting them know he's fresh on the scene he hasn't put Lazarus in the grave. Where have you laid him? But more than that, he's compassionately entering into her grief with her. He wants to see what she has seen. He wants to feel what she has felt. He wants to know the agony she has endured. Where Jesus reasoned with Martha, he wept with Mary. He so loved these grieving sisters with specific words and specific actions that he met them where they were in their grief. So, beloved, it's right and good for us to understand as the body of Christ that we will also grieve differently. Some of us will, will grieve in the exercise of our reason. We'll, we'll work through it logically and ask all the questions and struggle with all the things that don't make sense to us. Others of us will, will grieve with the, the flamboyancy of external expressions of grief, like Mary, throwing ourselves before God in tears and begging Him to change it. Jesus has compassion and mercy and care for these expressions of grief. But as he sees the tomb and sees Mary weeping and sees the Jews who are with Mary weeping, what does he do? And beloved, this is the most perplexing part of John 11. This is the part when you're reading on your own in the Bible, you should get to a verse like this and, and stop and say, what in the world is going on here? It's the shortest verse in the Bible. It's the first verse said in all those verse memory quizzes in VBS. As my elders joked this morning, it should be then the shortest sermon. You know better than that. 
shortest verse, however, presents us with one of the greatest perplexities. And the simple question is, why did Jesus weep? Last December, my sister-in-law, Shelly, passed away suddenly after battling just a short battle with breast cancer. Celebrated her 50th birthday in the month of October. We gathered in December to remember her short life and move forward as much as we could as a family with that grief. About a month later, my brother Facebook messaged me and said to me, I'm asking all my pastor friends, I want to know the answer to this question. Why did Jesus weep if he knew the ending? There's nothing like a fresh wound of grief to make you ask questions like that. That's the question of this text. Why is Jesus weeping when he knows what's about to happen? And I think the answer is found in the text itself. We're given in the answer to that question three more assurances that help us in our suffering and in our agony. These three assurances that we see in this text are like massive rocks in the fortress of trust. The harder the wind blows and the more fierce the storm, the more we can look and inspect these rocks and be assured that we have refuge in our Lord who has built this strong tower for us. We see those assurances through the answer to that question. Why did Jesus weep? Well, he wept because he was deeply moved. He wept because he was greatly troubled. And he wept because he truly loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. That answer gives us our three assurances. The first of those three assurances is that Jesus is moved by our grief. Be assured in your faith as you are called to face suffering in this sin-cursed world, that Jesus is moved by your grief. The scene in John 11 is quite overwhelming. He, as the Savior of the world, is confronted with a most horrific scene. A distraught sister falling on her knees before him and weeping, quickly followed by this crowd of Jewish mourners who presume Mary is on the way to the tomb. She can't be left alone. She can't mourn alone. We must go with her. Some of them likely were professional mourners. If you were a, a, a not wealthy family, a poor family in Jewish culture of those days, you had to hire at least three mourners when you lost a loved one. How much more than for a very wealthy family like Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. There's a lot of probably professional mourners who are here with Mary. But there are others who are, I think, genuinely gripped with the deep sorrow that Mary felt. And as they come to Jesus, it's that deep grief that grips our Lord first. Verse 33, John tells us that he saw this weeping and he was deeply moved in his spirit. Maybe you have a footnote in your Bible under verse 33 that says something like, or was indignant. Deeply moved, or was indignant. It's the same word used in verse 38, which precedes Jesus going even closer to the tomb as he prepares to resurrect Lazarus. It's a word that indicates a a deep internal moving of emotions and will in response to a great difficulty and problem. It's a word used in other contexts to speak of Jesus issuing a stern warning, telling people to to be cautious and careful. 
It's a word used outside of the New Testament to describe a, a horse snorting through its nose, indignant and determined. This grief, dare I say, is, is an indignant anger. A righteous and holy wrath at the scene before him. This grief he sees displayed compels within him a deep response of, of anger and indignation, internal fury. He is deeply moved. This deep moving of our Lord is that which further compels him to do what he came to do, which is to overthrow death and bring about the resurrection of Lazarus. Now, we know that, that that's not why he did this. He was on his way here to do that from the start. But he doesn't just show up on the scene emotionless and say, the answer is here. Where's the tomb? Lazarus, come out. And he shows up on the scene and he is gripped with the reality of their sorrow. And he enters in to the difficulty and the pain of the moment. And that compels him further. He is deeply moved by that. But what is he indignant about? What is he deeply moved by? Some have said maybe it's the professional grievers who show up and, and grieve professionally as for a job and a paycheck. Obviously grieving out of their own unbelief. Not keeping before them the, the hope of all who are in the Lord and have the, the joy of resurrection even in their sorrow. Maybe. That's not how John presents it. If you just read the text prima facie, that's not, he doesn't say anything different about the mourners who are with Mary than he does about Mary. In fact, he uses the exact same words to describe their mourning. So I doubt that's what caused our Lord such deep inner turmoil. I think rather our Lord is so deeply moved by the reality of death that it, it strikes so very close to his own human experience. Though he even as God in the flesh knew the answer and knew the outcome and knew it wasn't final, he saw his friend, his beloved friend Lazarus, dead in a tomb. This troubled him deeply. B.B. Warfield says it this way, it is death that is the object of his wrath. And behind death, him who has the power of death and whom he has come into the world to destroy. Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but this is incidental. His soul is held by rage and he advances to the tomb in Calvin's words as a champion who prepares for conflict. The raising of Lazarus thus becomes not an isolated marvel, but a decisive instance and open symbol of Jesus' conquest of death and hell, not in cold unconcern, but in flaming wrath against the foe Jesus smites in our behalf. He was deeply moved. Seeing the grave of Lazarus and the grief of Mary moved our Lord like a conquering king to go to battle against death, the grave, and Satan who holds the power of death through sin. He was determined already to do this. Now he rises closer to the challenge. This is the culprit, I think, behind all of our grief. Sin runs amok in our world and stains everything. Every grief you carry in your heart this morning can be traced back to sin and its curse in some way. 
And you must know this morning that that is not okay with Jesus. I think we get so used to the fact that we live in a sin-cursed, devil-dominated, death-filled world that it's just kind of a que-sera-sera mentality. Whatever will be, will be. It's just how it is. Put up or shut up, just deal with it, move through life. Friend, John 11 says to you, Jesus is not okay with this. He is not a fatalist. He is not an unconcerned sovereign who sits on the high perch of his highly exalted throne and says, well, I hope it works out for them. Rather, in glorious compassion and tender mercy, he enters into our existence leaving the highest of heights to, ascend, to, to descend to the lowest of lows as slave and servant of all, enduring and suffering the greatest of pain and the worst of agony, so that in moments like these in John 11 and ultimately in John 19 and 20, he can rise up against the greatest of our foes, which is sin causing and leading to death, and he can overcome it and put it to death. He is deeply moved. He also is troubled by our grief. He's deeply moved by our grief, but he's also troubled by our grief. That's the next phrase in verse 33. Why did Jesus weep? Because he was greatly troubled by Mary's grief. The prophet Isaiah says in chapter 53 that the Jewish people on the day of Christ's second coming will see him whom they have pierced and they will sing the song, the hymn of Isaiah 53. They will recognize him for who he is and they will declare faith in that moment of this one that we rejected and despised. This one we thought so ill of is actually indeed our Savior. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree for us. It's a song of lament and faith. It's a song that, that confesses all that is true about Jesus. That the Jewish people have, have largely missed and denied for thousands of years. In verse 3 of Isaiah 53, the prophet says, and they will one day say in a day yet to come, that Jesus was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. The word in the original behind acquainted in Isaiah 53 is the most intimate word for knowledge that he could have used. It's used to, for knowledge in lots of contexts, but in this one in particular, I think he means he didn't just wave at grief as he passed it on the street. He didn't just shake grief's hand one time and say, oh yeah, I, I know grief. No, no, he knew grief. He knew sorrow to its greatest depths. We see that, obviously, throughout Jesus' life and ministry. As he walks through the sin-cursed world and he sees the crowds, he's moved with compassion for them because he sees them as sheep without a shepherd. He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief when he comes across a, a lame man who's never walked. When he enters in near the pool of Siloam in, in Jerusalem and he sees the, the whole place filled with invalids who have no hope. They're so out of hope that they, 
they lay on their beds near a pool hoping that they can get in first when it's supposedly rippled by an angel from above? I mean, that's hopeless. He's acquainted with that grief. Chapter 12, we'll read of Jesus being deeply troubled by his own impending death. As he considers the approaching hour, he will say to them, I am deeply troubled, but I will not back down, my paraphrase. Chapter 13, he uses the same word to describe how troubled he is in his spirit when he looks at his 12 disciples in the upper room and he considers Judas, who is in just a matter of moments about to leave at Christ's command and go and do his Satan-inspired deed of turning Jesus over to the authorities. This is obviously an emotionally charged term which is always related to death. It's a deep and overwhelming grief that is provoked by the finality of the grave. His anger of point one is partnered here with deep grief in assurance number two. He's not simply outraged at the reality of death, but here he feels the great pangs of death's blow bite into his core essence and nature. This all combines to produce the reaction then of verse 35 that Jesus wept. John uses a different term for Jesus weeping than he did in verses 31 and 33 for the crowds and for Mary weeping. It's a word used only in this text in all of the New Testament. John's intending to draw a distinction between the weeping of Mary and the Jews and that of our Lord. The weeping of verse 33 describes an outward lament, a a clear and obvious public display of grief. It's kind of the expected response in their culture when you hear that someone has died. You are to grieve openly and lament this reality. But the word used of Jesus in verse 35 is, is a word of simply shedding tears. He's so moved with the reality of the moment, he can't help but identify with their pain and cry with them. To be clear, I do not think John means to say Mary's weeping was fake. It was not. It was real and true. What he's removing is any thought in you that Jesus was putting on a show. That he was just saying by his actions, oh yeah, I identify with you. Now, now, it'll be okay. No, he knew the depth of this grief in the bottom of the pit of his soul and it compelled out of him true and real tears of weeping with Mary at the grave of her brother. How glorious is our Savior. How comforted and assured you ought be in your own grief to know that he knows and he cares. He has felt the depths of your sorrow to a level you cannot yet even comprehend. He's gone further down this cave than you'll ever be asked to go. And he knows your sorrow and your grief. J.C. Ryle, one of my favorite commentators in John, says this, I find a deep mine of comfort in this thought that Jesus is perfect man, no less than perfect God. He in whom I am told by Scripture to trust is not only a great high priest, but a feeling high priest. He is not only a powerful Savior, but a sympathizing Savior. 
He is not only the Son of God, mighty to save, but the Son of Man, able to feel. Who could dream up a greater Savior? One who is perfect in divinity and therefore completely able to save, and one who is perfect in humanity and therefore fully equipped to save in every way. So those depths of grief you know in your own soul, bring those to our Savior and know he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, equipped to save you from every blow. Third assurance is found in verses 35 and 37, that Jesus is compassionate in our grief. He's compassionate toward us in our grief. Why did he weep? Well, because he was greatly moved and deeply troubled, but also because he truly loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. As he drew closer to Lazarus' tomb, he was moved by compassion to share the grief Mary and Martha felt. Can I say it this way? To to draw closer to the tomb of Lazarus, Jesus felt even more the, the weight of his decision to delay his coming. This was not lost on him like some king sitting on a throne making a decision and, and letting his minions work it out. No, he sees before him the reality of the grief that his decision caused. To not speak or move with the slightest inclination of his will that Lazarus would be healed. Rather, he delayed and waited and didn't do that so that Lazarus would die and is now in the grave. And because he loves Mary and Martha and Lazarus, he here weeps with them over their grief. He does not correct them or chide them. He does not brashly call them to stop grieving and have hope in the future resurrection. Rather, he enters in and shares their pain. He loves them. He knows the depth of their agony. In fact, he knows the depths of their agony better than they themselves know it. And he will take that agony and that sorrow and he will bear it upon himself as he approaches his own cross, his own death, his own descent into the, into the blackest of caves of human sorrow. And he will ascend out of that cave of, of sorrow and suffering as the brightest, most precious jewel ever found. And they are found in the darkest caves and the deepest places, aren't they? Jesus descends to the darkest and the deepest of them all and is raised up conqueror over them all. So wherever he has led you down that grave of grief and sorrow, however dark the trail has become, know that he never leaves you there. That on his ascent back out, he takes you with him, leads you in his train. Though he has himself been humbled, he has now been exalted. And though you are now humbled in grief and sorrow, you too will be exalted in him. For he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, fully conquering them all. What's the reaction to this shared compassion by Jesus with Mary? Well, it's a split decision in verses 36 and 37, isn't it? The jury's hung. Verse 36, some of them say, look at how he loved Lazarus. Verse 37, some say, well, listen, 
why in the world he who healed the blind man, why couldn't he come and make sure this one did not die? Notice how the miracle of chapter 9 is still ringing in their ears and is fresh on their minds. How monumental of a work of Jesus in chapter 9 in their midst to to heal the man born blind. That shows you how important chapter 9 is. Because they're still thinking about it months later. And it proved to them that he is the Messiah. But now it puts them in a spot of perplexity. And they ask the question that has been asked by every atheist and probably every agnostic who has ever lived under the sun. They've heard the claims of Christians. They've heard the revelation of Scripture. They hear us say God is omnipotent and omnibenevolent. He is all-powerful and he is all-good. And then they look at God's world and they say, how is that possible? He's either not all-powerful, therefore unable to take away all human suffering and sorrow, or he is not all-good, but he cannot be both in the construct of the atheist and the agnostic. In fact, that is the exact insinuation of the crowd in verse 37 when they say, but some of them said, could not he? In the original, that is the point of emphasis. Is he not able? Does he not have the power? You see, they're perplexed by the delay of Jesus and the death of Lazarus as it relates to what they know to be true of Jesus in his power. And so what's exposed by this work of Jesus is that which is exposed in every agnostic and in every atheist. And that is the commitment to unbelief. There are many answers, good answers, to the question of how can God be both good and loving and still have suffering in the world. But this text specifically exposes the unbelief behind the question. The unbelief that drives them to even ask the questions. By the question, they're confessing that if they are to believe in Jesus, it will be because of his power displayed, not because of his words spoken. In other words, they will believe him on their terms when he convinces them enough. This is the kind of of so-called faith that's always demanding a new sign, a new display of power. What has God done lately that would encourage my ongoing faith in him? But real faith, true faith, is countered in this text by Mary herself. You probably missed it when we read over verse 32, but look at it again. She's dealing with the same perplexity of Jesus' sovereignty and his goodness. For the crowd, it provokes unbelief. For Mary, it provokes worship. That's the main verb of verse 32. Mary came to Jesus and she fell down. She had something to say to Jesus, but before she ever got it out of her mouth, she was compelled in the presence of Jesus to fall before him in humble submission and worship. Now, I wouldn't be able to say that if I didn't know the rest of the story with Mary. If this is all we had about her, then we probably couldn't make that claim. But this is just a foreshadowing to what she's going to do in chapter 12, verse 3. Just a few weeks later, when Jesus enters into Bethany the night before the beginning of Passover, and they celebrate together on that Saturday night, and she, in front of a large crowd, takes expensive ointment and 
douses his feet with it and washes his feet with her hair, anoints his feet with that oil and cleanses it with her hair and worships him publicly. What happens in chapter 12 is is foreshadowed here in chapter 11 when in the perplexity of the situation, she falls on her face before her Savior. Friend, this is your option in grief because it just doesn't make sense. It just doesn't make sense. There are perplexities to your grief that probably will elude you into eternity. But there is a Savior, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, who knows the depth of that pain and that agony and has overcome it and is asking you in your grief to trust him, to worship him, to fall before him in humble faith. Indeed, no one else knows the pain and the sorrow you feel like that Negro spiritual says. No one does but Jesus. There's a hymn in our hymn book, number 311, has such tremendous poetic expression of this truth. Hallelujah, what a savior. Man of sorrows, what a name for the son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven's exalted high. Hallelujah. What a savior. When he comes our glorious king. All his ransomed home to bring. Then anew this song will sing. Hallelujah. What a savior. Take your hymnal with me. Turn to number 311. We'll close with this. Stand with me. We'll sing together. And we'll be dismissed with this hymn. 311. Hallelujah, what a Savior. We'll sing a cappella. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood, Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless lamb of God was he, 
Full atonement can it be, Alleluia, what a He to die, it is finished, was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high, Alleluia, what a Savior. When he comes our glorious King, all His ransomed home to bring. Then anew this song will sing, Alleluia, what a Savior. God in heaven, we praise you that this is true. That one day we will with new voices, redeemed bodies, fully redeemed lives and existences, praise you before your throne and say, hallelujah, what a savior. Would you help us in this grief-stricken world to wait for you in humble faith? Would you be near to the brokenhearted today? Would you walk through their affliction with them would you prove your power to save and to heal? In Jesus' name, amen. God's grace to you. You're dismissed.